Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. The question for leaders is not if a crisis will happen to your company, but when. Now, I know that's a bold statement, and I'm going to tell you, we're finding it's more accurate than you might suspect, and it's certainly not becoming a hyperbole anymore. So the question is, are you ready? And how about your leaders? And who can you really count on when things get tough? And how ready are they? So today we're going to talk about crisis and change, what's driving them, why you can't wait until it happens to prepare, and what you can do to get yourself and your organization ready when a crisis hits. Now, heads up, this is not about an evacuation plan or a crisis communication to the press. It's a lot more involved than that, but you shouldn't be surprised. My guest today is Eric McNulty. Eric is a Harvard-affiliated writer, speaker, and educator who has an absolute passion for purpose-driven leadership. He is the Associate Director and Program Faculty at Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, and he works on leadership in all sorts of high-stakes, high-stress situations. Certainly a brilliant speaker, lots of workshops, and tons of teaching in a variety of places. And he's the co-author of a brand new book called You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest. Um, As many people who have listened before, you're one of the people I follow in many of your various online columns, like in strategy and business and a host of other things. So I always enjoy hearing your perspective. And this one about your it in a crisis, I think, is really important. But let's start at the top of this one. What kind of crises are you talking about? What are you focusing on here? Well, I'm sad to say uh, working the crisis is a growth industry right now. Because when you look around you, we've got severe weather events happening with greater frequency. You have product issues, like what Boeing is going through right now, uh, cyber attacks. All, um, you have all these cultural, uh, culture-related uh, crises as well, and it's a Me Too movement. There's a whole swirl around us uh, of crises where we actually are in a, tr- a time of great turbulence uh, on many fronts. So when you say which crisis, it's almost uh, which crisis do you want to talk about today? Because there's enough to fill more than one day into the conversation. Yeah. my One of my business partners, um, Peter Wright, says he's been tracking it for the like, last four years. And he says that there's a company in crisis every week, like a major headline company in crisis every week over something. And it's not just because their financials are looking bad. It's all this other stuff that's happening. So why? I mean, you mentioned weather and cyber, but is there anything that's unique now that's driving this phenomena of so many crises? Well, I think there's no single cause, but I think we've got one of those moments when the holes in the Swiss cheese line up. Um, and so you've got a couple of things going on. One is we do have these larger system scale changes unfolding, which are not always bad. I mean, there are, there's opportunity as well as, as challenge in these, but the climate is the big one. The climate is changing. I don't think anyone can seriously deny it anymore. I was just reading this morning, the chairman of Chubb was, was calling the uh, last year biblical and existential in terms of the threats. They paid $160 billion in damages last year uh, as a result of disasters. 
um, some, some mass up. So you have the, the climate is a big driver there uh, of changing things. We also have this urbanization phenomenon where we are becoming a more urban species, uh, and a lot of that growth is happening in uh, the third world, in the developing world. Um, and so you have lots of, of condensed humanity in environments where there's not necessarily a lot of traditional infrastructure. So I think you get something like the, like the Ebola breakout from a couple of years ago. Um, that begins to transmit really quickly, and it can go from what was a, a, a local phenomenon into a global one very quickly. Um, we are aging uh, in the global north. We're getting older, and that comes with a whole group of challenges and opportunities as well. So that's sort of one piece, <clears throat> and, and I think that plays into some of the geopolitical issues we're seeing. And I, what I sense is a, a general sense of unease, um, that people are uncomfortable and not feeling certain about the future, or certain in some cases, not even certain about the present. Uh, I know most folks who are not uh, tenured faculty don't feel a lot of job security. We continue to debate major health care policy changes that could leave folks without coverage. So there's lots of angst hanging in the air. And then you layer on top of that the, the, the pressure on public companies to deliver quarter after quarter um, where investors are not patient. Uh, they want to see results right away. You've got uh, just a, a lot of change going on in ways that, as it intersects, creates real turbulence and disruption. Right. So that makes it sound, you know, it's easy. I've heard this before, right? Change is faster. And, the you know, we've been quoting the VUCA for a really long time. This is going on for a number of years. But it somehow feels in this year that it's different, that it's it. There's many more things, as you describe, coming together. Is that your experience as well? I think there's great debate around this because you look back to the first half of the 20th century and you had two world wars, the Great Depression, and a pandemic that killed millions of people. So you know, there, there was uh, significant turbulence there as well. I think the difference now and why it feels different is because we are so more tightly interconnected. That's another one of those system-scale changes I was talking about, um, that we have much denser connections globally so that something that, has, that could have been a relatively small event can have a very large impact. Um, and I think that's when I, I talk about VUCA. I've gone from VUCA to VUCAS, where S, S is those system-scale changes and T is ubiquitous transparency where almost everyone can see almost everything in almost real time, uh, which fundamentally changes things. I mean, as, as dramatic an event as the fire at Notre Dame was as, uh, a couple of days ago, which is truly horrible, um, 10 or 20 years ago, we would have read about it the next day. We might have seen some clips on the news. Now we have millions of people watching it in real time. Um, and so that's a, a certain kind of crisis for a certain part of the world, which all of a sudden becomes global. Now think of your company under that same spotlight. Um, go back a couple of years to the passenger on the United flight who was dragged off um, yeah. by security because he wouldn't give up his seat. That, that, again, 15 years ago, that would have been on page 18 of the Sun-Times. It would have been a local thing. No one would have thought much about it. And then lawsuit and gone on. But very quickly, because we now carry around that studio in our pockets and we can upload live video wherever we happen to be, um, that becomes a global phenomenon, and you have an instant crisis for a major corporation under the spotlight, has to react quickly, and if you're not ready to do it, you can have some serious missteps from which it's hard to recover. Right, right. You think about any number of social phenomena that we're seeing now. So, for example, I'd argue that hashtag Me Too can happen because of social media, so that you can garner support for that 
in the past, you would have had to get a newspaper to cover it, to want to run the story, to run the risk of libel, somebody trying to pay them off. I mean, a whole host of things that could prevent that story from coming out. Today, none of those actors need to be in the place with the advent of social media. Um, or if you think about some of the other crises where we feel like um, someone has been treated unjustly by a law enforcement agency, now you've got people videotaping that and posting it, and boy, does it change the debate a tad bit. So I do absolutely. think. You, yeah, go ahead. You know, so you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this has fundamentally changed the game. Where, you know, once upon a time, um, with the kind of infractions we're talking about in the in the Me Too movement, you would have had a maybe if you were lucky, be able to get enough coherence to get a, a class action lawsuit. And, and have a big enough impact that way. It takes a long time, and making it's very tough to make connections between cases like that. But now, social media, things can go so quickly, and when cleverly positioned, you know, again, the right hashtag, the right spokesperson, the right spark to light the fire, off it goes. Um, and it, it goes off in, in ways that, that are, in some ways, easy to predict, in some ways, difficult to predict. Uh, but it certainly goes fast, and it goes big. Uh, and that doesn't mean we're always having a reasoned, debate about things, uh, but it means that issues are getting out there and people are being uh, exposed one way or the other, um, which makes it a difficult environment in which to, to try and operate. Right. And some of those, we should also say, are not always accurately, as they're reported on social media, and you can get a whole conspiracy theory going or some other thing going that isn't necessarily grounded in facts, but that's all now outside of our control as leaders. It happens in the world, and it's now how do we deal with it. Um, before I turn to how do we deal with it, Eric, one of the things that I'm stunned by when I speak with senior leaders is they don't seem, they somehow think, seem to think it won't happen here. Like you under know, my leadership, we're in good shape. Do you see the same phenomena? I, I do see the same phenomena. And there is, and I, I've forgotten, I wish I could remember whose quote this was. I read it in Time Magazine years ago, but I think it really has held up. It's sort of the four states of denial of why people don't prepare. And the first is it won't happen. And if it, won't, if it does happen, it won't happen here. Then if it does happen here, it won't be that bad. And if it does happen here and it is that bad, well, I couldn't have prepared for something that big anyway. <laughs> um, so there is this thinking that, yeah, it all happens to someone else. A colleague and I were just talking about this in, in advance of the, uh, the anniversary of the Columbine shooting, which is upon us 20 years ago now, uh, and saying that even though as, as it become more common, we still have many communities who think, yeah, that happens to someone else. It doesn't happen to us. So what do we need right. to do to prepare? With right. um, you know, any organization, though, any company, there is the potential for something to happen. I mean, few, few organizations are full of perfect people, or nor are they perfectly organized in every way. So there is potential. Now, I think there are some with much lower potential because they do things in the right way, and they've got a culture of openness and transparency, and they deal with things early on uh, in whatever realm it happens to be. Um, but there is always a potential, and it is those who are best prepared who are going to react most quickly and uh, most sure-footedly if something does happen. And again, it could be uh, something outside of your control. Um, you know, active shooter events are an example of you have a disgruntled whomever, customer or former employee, whatever, who shows up and starts um, starts <clears throat> shooting people. That plunges you into crisis, uh, and you have to know how to react and react yeah. quickly. Yeah. So let's talk for a minute about then how. Um, what is it 
that I need to do as a leader of an organization first to get myself ready? Well, I think that and what you just said is a perfect first step is rid yourself of the belief that it couldn't happen to you and start asking yourself, what if it, what if it does happen? And how can you create the conditions under which it's less likely to happen to you? Um, so that does mean having a, a good view into your organization and knowing what's going on and really having a sense of um, the culture, not just as you would like it to be, but it's, as it's actually practiced. Are we okay. taking care of our customers in the right way? Are we making sure our product is absolutely as perfect as it can be? Are people being treated fairly here? Are we dealing with complaints in a, an equitable and transparent way? There's all kinds of things you can do to make sure that you're sort of mitigating things when you begin to admit that they could happen to you. Um, the second is that, and, and I find this is a, a real challenge for senior executives, and I could change one thing, this would be it, is to actually participate in exercises or drills around the threats you feel are, are most significant. And I say that because what often happens is you've got more operational-level people who are going to run your, the crisis management operations, and the, the seat that, where the CEO will sit is, is filled by a junior staffer who's wearing a little tag that says CEO, and that person acts it out in scripted ways because the CEO is too busy to show up. Um, however, when a bad thing happens, that CEO is going to show up and is going to expect to be in charge, which can make them a very disruptive presence. Because everybody who has thought through, here's what we're going to do, here's the decisions we're going to make, here, and they get the protocols all worked out, they get sort of a battle rhythm they're going to go into to respond. And when somebody comes in from outside who with the authority to change things around, um, that battle rhythm gets totally disrupted. And now you, now you have a lot of dysfunction and people trying to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And it really takes, takes the focus off the ball. So uh, although it, you know, it takes... You know, an hour or so, a couple of hours in the worst case, um, have those senior executives actually show up and feel the adrenaline, feel the emotional pressure, because uh, a well-constructed drill, um, can, can, it simulates some of that, and it will open your eyes to say, okay, oh, I did, didn't think about that, because uh, it really helps your people to know what are the first three or four questions you're going to ask, what are the answers you're going to be looking for right away, because then they can build the systems to try and get you those answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than trying to build them on the fly. Mm-hmm. That's Eric. That's a really interesting point. I mean, I I know that CEOs don't often turn up for these drills. They get briefed about them, and I get that. Perhaps is another way to prepare a CEO. I'm not sure about that, but perhaps I understand why we do that. But you just made the point about the counter that the people who have now worked through how are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do? Who's going to notify whom? What don't we say? Why don't we say that? They've done that as a whole system for how we react, but I drop in somebody who expects to be in charge and show that they're in charge in the moment of a crisis, and they're not part of that discussion, so they completely disrupt everything uh, unintentionally. It's a, that's a massive point there. Okay. Yeah, so, I, would, if I could make one sort of uh, side point to that, which is if you're not going to show up, then show up in a way that is – so the example I use here is, is uh, Governor Deval Patrick, who's governor of Massachusetts for, for eight years, and he was the governor during the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, and what we heard consistently when we did interviews with people, as with, he would walk into the room, he would say, how can I be useful? Or what do you need me to do? 
He trusted his operational people well enough to know that he didn't tell, need to tell them how to run, you know, how, how many people to put here or how many people to put there. He trusted them to be able to do that, and he came in and put himself at service in service of that larger effort. Didn't give away his authority, wasn't breaching the chain of command, but came in and said, how can I be useful? That way he knew he didn't do something stupid that disrupted the operation. Yeah, right. That's an easier said than done for somebody who's used to being in charge and in the adrenaline. <laughs> it requires some ego control. Yeah, yeah definitely some right. ego control needed there. Yeah. One of the phenomena I've been tracking, too, is when a crisis happens, is it isn't always the CEO that's available. So I think about the German Wings airplane crash of a number of years ago. And you would, you know, yes, the CEO of German Wings and of Lufthansa held a lovely press conference. It was two days after the event, if I remember correctly, before they got their press conference. All appropriate. But there's somebody on the ground there who had to deal with the press in that moment. And they were not in the senior leadership team. So this notion of having people ready is, that's an interesting one to me. It is, and I think that, and again, the companies that I see who have done this most effectively, they have emergency or crisis management teams at different levels of the organization, and they actually try and resolve things as close to the, the ground as they can, as close to the front lines as they can. But you're right. The, the CEO may not be available. The CEO may not be the, the appropriate person, may not know enough, may have to get briefed and all kinds of things before they can go in front of the, the press, but you're going to need someone. So, uh, first of all, there are some initial statements you can draft almost in advance and, and have legal go through them and approve them. Um, you know, it's, it says you're aware of the event, you've got a dedicated team working on it, uh, and you are cooperating with investigators, whatever's appropriate for the scenario. You can pick out a few scenarios and write these are fairly generic, but it gets you that first statement up. That's what's not a void. It isn't like you're, you're nowhere to be seen. You've issued a statement, and you'll be back as soon as you've got more. Um, yeah. But getting people at each, you know, at your regional level, at the, you know, again, depending on how large the organization is, um, or at the country level and or state level, even to be to know who who's going to do what, and that they've there. You've got a team that knows the other team. They get them alternates in case one of them is on vacation, uh, and they've been through some kind of training and preparation to know what they're going to do and know what the company expects of them. You set really clear operating principles of. You know, we take care of people first, and, and you're serious, and you back that up with your actions. They'll be able to make decisions until the, the more senior folks get there and, and uh, assert their authority. Yeah, that makes some sense. I love this one. But the first step is we have to get people out of the notion of it won't happen here, <laughs> or it won't happen to me, or whatever else, the denial that we're all brilliant at doing. Okay, so can you give me an example of someone who's done a brilliant job of handling crisis? You were just talking about the governor at the who's the governor of Massachusetts during the Boston Marathon bombing. Any other examples that you think are just great? I think the uh, the most recent one that I've seen that I, I really thought was terrific was um, Gary Kelly, CEO of Southwest Airlines, after the incident where the blades in the engine came to the window and and was killed. Um, which I thought, they, so they went proactively. Um, it was obviously a travel, terrible accident. There were questions about maintenance and things they had to look into, so they didn't have all the answers right away. Um, but they went right away to passengers, um, didn't wait for the lawyers to call, but, but went and to be in touch with them, with their families, to offer some condolences and compensation. Um, and, that, and Kelly was out with a video statement very quickly, 
demonstrating empathy and transparency uh, that they were going to get to the bottom of this. Um, and you can find the video online. It's not, not hard to find. Um, but it was right away. We take care of our customers, so we're going to do something. And whether you think it was the right offer, the wrong offer, that's you can debate. But they went. They were very quickly that before people even were expecting it, they got something from Southwest saying this was awful. We're taking responsibility for it. Here is our, you know, they, I forget we got the exact uh, what what they gave them, the refund for the fare, obviously, and some other things they gave them. Um, but they knew what to do right out of the gate, and I think you you um, you know that. When your values are really clear and your culture is really strong, which I think it is in Southwest, um, and, that, and so the, and that's uh, that's the most recent really good example um, I can think of. Right. It's interesting to me when we point at great examples, like the historical one everybody's always looked at was the Tylenol scare where um, poison was put inside a Tylenol bottle, as I recall the events, for people who don't remember it or never heard about it. And then it was a sort of very immediately, our value state X, and therefore we're going to take care of this. And they would called absolutely every bottle of Tylenol anywhere, took it off the shelf until they could figure out where the source was and so on. And I know that at the time, um, Johnson & Johnson had just gone through a major values clarification exercise in de- defining and rewriting their value statement. And having just redone that was a big guiding principle to decide that, no, we're going to act consistent with that values. So knowing that and being clear about it and meaning it, as opposed to we just put it on the wall, um, can lead, I think is important in a time of crisis. Absolutely, and it, and it, 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 it whether you doing it uh, builds enduring value with your customers, with your employees, with all your stakeholders when they see you actually walk the walk, and just as saying it but not doing it can cause lasting damage. Look at any number of the the recent scandals from the from the uh, financial crisis on forward. Virtually every one of those companies has a glowing value statement. The difference is some organizations actually live their values every day, uh, and they make sure they, they are baked into their operations, their processes, their protocols, you know, how they recognize and reward people. So it is part of who they are. It's not just a, a, a plaque on the wall or a page in the annual report. Um, and it is, and I remember in the Johnson and Johnson case, which is still one of the go-to cases when you want to talk about how, how to respond. Uh, when, they, when they had their list of stakeholders, shareholders were on there, but shareholders were at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so you don't take care of shareholders at the expense of that mom or dad at home or that nurse or doctor in the hospital. You take care of them first because if you take care of them well, the shareholders will get taken care of in the end. Right. And I think that was a really clarifying, clarifying moment for for them, and it helped them. Uh, you know, they acted quickly, and they went larger than they in the end needed to, but they did it to make sure that they were absolutely certain they had pulled all the potentially tainted product off the, off the market. Right. Well, while we're on this one, I know um, a guest in the last couple of shows, Davia Timmon, and we've talked about the hashtag Me Too movement and how do you prepare yourself and protect your company. And her advice to companies is very explicitly, one of the pieces, is to have a very pristine, clear, concise, well-designed, well-articulated, documented process to investigate any accusation that is brought forward. 
But you have to have that process in place well in advance of somebody actually bringing the, the statement forward. That protects you as the company. It protects all individuals involved on other side that people can be cleared. There is a process. We will get to the bottom of this one. And in some ways, that strikes me as very similar to what you're saying about the values of being really clear. What are we doing and how are we doing it and why are we doing it? And what's our belief about this? And again, not saying it's not that it won't happen. It's more like if it happens here, what's our plan? Absolutely. And so, you, and so you've got two kinds of, of, of things you're, you're preparing for. Um, the behavioral piece you see in the hashtag MeToo, um, you hope it doesn't happen. You hope that you're hiring people who are not going to behave that way and you are modeling that behavior and showing no tolerance for uh, misbehavior in that regard. And then, yes, I think, you know, if you could have a process that is transparent and authentic and honest, you go a long way to reassuring people that um, if someone oversteps a line, then there, will be, there are consequences. Um, and and you, you have that zero tolerance. An excellent example, different situation, but one, a large uh, Fortune 100 company that I've worked with um, they found the number one cause of deaths in their workforce were auto-related or motor vehicle-related accidents. They're global. People are in cars or trucks or things all the time. And um, so they decided to get serious about it. And one of the things that's now in place in their organization globally is that failure to wear a seatbelt in any vehicle is reason for termination on the first event. Wow. Whether you're a clerk or you're a senior vice president, if you're seen not wearing a seatbelt in a company car, your own car, a taxi, a truck, whatever it happens to be, you're gone. Because their yeah. stance is, we don't, we don't want you to die or be injured. This, will, this is a common sense, easy to do uh, act, put a seatbelt on. Um, and if you're in a vehicle that doesn't have a seatbelt, you have permission to get out of that vehicle and wait for another one. If you miss a meeting, we don't care. We'd rather have you be safe and alive. Yeah. Um, so it's you know it is those everyday things like that. I've I've worked with a number of energy companies, and I often notice when they walk through a building or outside, if there's a hand railing, they've got a hand on the hand railing, because that safety training is baked into them. You, know, you may think, oh, walking down the, you know, from the second to the third floor, your building is not very dangerous. It's not, but walking from the second to third third level of, a, of an oil rig is. Uh, and so training that when it's a handrail, you hold on because it makes you safer. It's so some of those little things that reinforce this is what we value as a company. And we're going to do it in the smallest gestures. makes it less likely you're going to make the mistakes that lead to the, the big crises. If you're, you're paying attention to little things. Right. And that's what leads when you come out, I think that's what leads when you come out and say, look, we're really sorry about this one. We're investigating. We'll get to the bottom of it. We'll take care of it. If you've done these little things along the way, that statement has credibility. If you've not done any of those little things, then nobody believes you on that statement. It's like, yeah, like the last six things you didn't take care of. So Exactly. Exactly. All right. All right. And the challenge with something like, you know, the, the Me Too uh, incidents is that the definition of what's right and what's wrong has still been evolving. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's some things that are obviously wrong, and you can draw the line and say that behavior is uh, inappropriate. Um, but we're beginning learning more and more of behavior that one person thought was appropriate or wasn't thinking about, and someone else said, I bet maybe feel really uncomfortable. So there's still a learning curve going there. And I think as a company, if you show you're trying to get up that learning curve as fast as possible and make sure that all of your employees are comfortable, feel respected, feel safe uh, at work, um, you're taking all those right steps, that helps you as well. Right. So we come back, and we're going to take a break here too in just a minute, Eric, but we come right back to in many ways the leaders willing to say, I don't have all the answers, and that's okay. I'm learning. I'm going to make some mistakes. We're going to fix those mistakes. We're going to move forward. It's that leaders willing to still have a growth mindset, an adaptability, a flexibility. That's going to make a difference in this. Am I right? Absolutely. And I think if you're a leader, one of the main things you want to be making sure of for yourself and those around you is you have a, a growth mindset, that you are continually learning. That's just good business sense. Uh, but certainly in, in some of these areas where um, our, our standards are changing or where the context is evolving, um, you've got to have your eyes and ears open so that you are understanding what's happening around you and actively soliciting advice um, and soliciting input and saying, hey, okay, you know, how do we make this place better, safer, more prepared, more resilient, uh, should something bad happen. Uh, When you ask, people will tell you. Okay. All right. Well, Eric, we're going to take a break here. I think um, the one of the things that strikes me about this one is, first off, that we have to really get our head out of the sand. It's not that it's not going to happen here or it's not going to happen to me or whatever. It's that the systematic scale change and the ways in which that can now be popularized through social media and the number of things that can go wrong with an aging population in a climate and in urbanization and all the geo political unrest that's going on at the moment means that we're in a cauldron where the chances of a crisis happening to you are high, just high. So then the question is, how do you get prepared? And I think the two big things that we've talked about thus far is to recognize, A, it's going to happen, B, participate in the training so you know how to interact with everybody and better they know how to interact with you. And then three is it all comes down to your values and being crystal clear about what those values are and living them day to day. Now, I know you have more to say than this. So when we come back from the break, that's what we'll focus on. My guest today is Eric McNulty, and the book we're talking about is your it crisis change and how to lead when it matters most we'll be right back from the boardroom to you voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. 
Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm with Eric McNulty. Eric is a Harvard-affiliated writer, speaker, educator. Um, who works with Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative as the Associate Director and the Program Faculty on that one. You can find out a lot more about Eric at his website, which is ericmcnulty.com. That's M-C-N-U-L-T-Y.com. And the book we've been talking about is You're It. Great title, Eric. So let me pick up the title, You're It, and start right at the top with whose responsibility is it anyway to make sure the organization is prepared? Is it the CEO's or someone else's? I think everyone has a role in that, and and thank you for the compliment on the title. It was no accident, because when a crisis hits, you are it. Um, When it's time to repair, you are it. And, And to the extent that everyone sees themselves as having part of that responsibility, um, as we were saying before the break, a lot of times it's small actions and getting in the habit of uh, doing things right day in and day out that helps mitigate a crisis from occurring, or when it does hit, it helps you respond that much faster. So I would say, you know, preparing is the CEO and the board, and I'm seeing more and more uh, people talking about board attention to these issues. And, you know, boards are busy, I get it. They have not a lot of room in their agenda for anything new. But they should make sure that the company has invested properly in the training, the expertise, the preparation for the risks they see and the risks they anticipate having to deal with. Um, and the CEO as well, making sure it's, it's taken seriously throughout the organization and not the, not the 17th thing on the agenda. Um, but actually the preparedness is important because you are likely to hit some, some bumps in the road. And the better you can handle it, the more quickly you can move forward and get back to business as normal. Okay. All right. So how do you, like if I move down, you know, we're all in love with talking about high potentials and doing high potentials training. So how, how do we think about high potentials in this context? And how do we get them well, I ready? Think, I think this is really interesting because what we have found over the years um, is that the things that make you a, cri- a great crisis leader are not that different than what makes you a really strong leader day-to-day. You may be playing at a different level 
when you're in a crisis, but a lot of the basic skills of being able to stay calm under pressure, being able to make decisions amidst ambiguity, knowing how to motivate people, how to demonstrate empathy. A lot of these skills that are really good when you're in a crisis are really good day-to-day. And so what I would say to high potentials is get yourself into the situation where you can get that crisis training or you can experience and be part of that crisis team because you will learn things to be able to both prove yourself and and improve your skills uh, along the way. It really is a good... uh, uh, the kind of experience that will exhibit a crucible experience that can really solidify who you are as a manager, who you are as a leader, and give yourself greater confidence as well as the organization greater confidence in you. You know, when we most of the time, I think the conventional wisdom is if you're preparing for a crisis, what you want to do is prepare for your public speaking so that you could stand in front of the press. But that wasn't what you focused on. You focused on things like how you lead, like being calm under pressure, being able to make decisions under conditions of ambiguity, being able to motivate people, and having empathy, and being able to show that empathy in a way that's actually really credible and believable. So and it's that's why our, our the, the meta leadership model that we talk we teach here at Harvard, and that's the, the core of the book. It starts with the person and who you are as an individual, and, and having you know control of your emotions, being able to be self-aware and, and know how to perform under pressure um, is, is critical, again, in crisis or not in crisis. And I think the part about speaking to the press, the one thing you want to remember is you know, have somebody who's media trained, it may or may not be you, and have that person talk to the press. Um, because it's a whole set of skills that until you've experienced it, you don't realize uh, how difficult it is. Um, and, of course, there are times when the, it is the CEO or, or another executive who has to get up and, and make the statement, make sure they're well prepped. But that part is a specific thing you can prepare for. The other skills are more general, and they equip you well for life, not just for crisis. Okay. All right. So do you have any advice about how to help somebody be calm under pressure or make decisions under certain conditions of ambiguity? Um, well, Yes, yeah, so there are two different things there. I mean, one is yeah. um, to be calm under pressure. Um, part of it is understanding how your brain functions under pressure, and we tend to go into this uh, panic response, a triple F response, free flight, fight, and you can reset that to turn it off with some simple deep breathing exercises. Three yeah. deep breaths. Close your eyes in, out, in, out. Take about 30 to 40 seconds, so not very long. That demonstration of self-competence and also creating a bit of mindfulness will naturally calm you down and bring you back into the present in a way that you'll be, you'll be calmer. You can do it more than once. You may need to, um, but that's a very simple little technique for restoring some calm. In terms of decision-making, it is, um, I think, of there's five R's that we say to keep in mind in the middle of a crisis. The first is regret. What are you going to regret make most making or not making this decision? Are you going to regret missing your, your sales target this quarter or that somebody died because your product was not was uh, deficient? That should help guide you to do decision-making and think about where's, where's the regret here and telling you how fast to go. The second one is how fast is it to repeal that decision? So can you call it back if, if, situation, if the circumstances change, if you get more evidence? Again, the easier it is to repeal, the faster you can make it, but and know that you will. You may want to reverse yourself. The third one is repercussions. How many other stakeholders does this affect? What are the second and third level effects of that decision? And be thinking through 
what you know, what do I do? To talk to what are the considerations you have to take? Keep in mind. The fourth one is resilience, and will a decision help or hinder the resilience of the people around you? Um, and that's a big one to think about. Not just what's happening right now, but are they going to be able to bounce forward through adversity? And the fifth, and perhaps the most important one, is reputation. In a crisis, the real battle is for reputation. Your personal reputation, as well as the reputation of your organization. You will get through whatever lawsuits there are if, if there's litigation involved. You will get through short-term financial pain. In the end of the day, if you're going to survive and thrive long-term, it's your reputation that's most important. And your reputation should guide the decisions that you make, that you, what you want to be known for after this turbulence is all over. What did you stand for? What did you do? And what can you say to uh, not just your coworkers, but your, your spouse, your kids, and your, your neighbors of, of how you behaved in a certain situation? Okay. That's an interesting one. It's that notion that you get through the lawsuit or the financial crisis or the pain or whatever, but what's your reputation? This takes us back to stuff we used to talk about years ago. Your character is what we used to say. What's your character? And I think that's what you mean by reputation. So regret, what do you make, would regret most? How fast can you repeal? Um, The repercussions, who else is affected, how many people, how is it going to affect them? Resilience, does this take your people up in resilience or down in resilience? And your own reputation when the crisis or the challenge is passed and over. Interesting. So, Eric, on that notion of regret, can we talk a little bit about what to do? I mean, can you recover? How do you repair? You use that word. So when stuff goes wrong, maybe it's your company's fault, maybe it's not your company's fault. Take Boeing as an example. Can you give advice about how you repair afterwards? Uh, yeah, it, well, it, it's hard to repair, um, and certainly the, the more uh, proactive you are early in a crisis, the easier it is to repair. And I think Boeing's going to have some issues, and I, I've written a bit about this um, as well. I think the way you repair, though, is by truly coming clean. Have, and being very transparent, remembering to be a bit humble here. Um, and again, I've not been inside Boeing, so I don't know what all the decision-making processes were like there and how things came to be the way they are. Uh, but you've got to hit the reset button. You want to recover and, base, and, and own it. You've got to take full accountability, be transparent about it, um, stop worrying about hiding the dirty laundry. You've got to wash the dirty laundry now. Um, you know, again, a company like Boeing's had a long tradition of, of good, pro- great products, been a very strong company, good employer. So they have a good base on which to, to rebuild. Uh, but they're going to have mm-hmm. some serious work to do because, um, you know, a lot of folks didn't know the name of the airplane they were flying on. And now they're looking really carefully and saying, which, which, which one am I going to get on or not? Um, and so it's, but it is, it's, it requires transparency, humility, and real authenticity. You've, you've got to get out there and own it. Take your lumps. Um, if you may have you, executives who need to step down, you may have some, you're certainly going to have litigation and lawsuits to go through for sure. Um, but take that pain, but take it in a way that says, you own it, you're going to make it better, you're going to do whatever it takes to, uh, to regain people's trust. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that defensive posture which is, well, you know, there are other circumstances, or no, it wasn't really our fault. I mean, years ago, Ford had um, a problem with tires on the cars, 
and causing damages and deaths. And they said, but it wasn't our tires. We bought them from, I don't even remember which company it was they bought them from. And it's funny, we don't remember the tire company, but we remember Ford. <laughs> so you got to own it. You you decided, you put them on there. It's your, your product. Absolutely. And that's what people will judge you. Will you stand by that decision you made and own the consequences, positive or negative? Um, and and that's a real is a real of character to use the word that uh, you so aptly used a few moments ago. Right. right. Okay. So we have talked about being really clear about what your values are um, and living them, walking them, living them, practicing them day to day, not just putting them as something on the wall. Let that be part of who you are. We talked about participating in all the crisis training and making sure that training is appropriate so everybody knows what their roles are and how we interact with each other, including the CEO. We've talked about um, having some immediate statements that you're going to make so you know what to say to people and some elements that go into that one so they're really clear and crisp. We've talked about having very thorough investigation processes so you actually can get to the bottom of what's happened and reassure people. We've talked about owning the um, problem, whatever it is, the crisis or mistake or whatever has caused it, coming clean, being transparent, being humble. We've talked about the qualities you need as a leader in terms of being prepared to deal with a crisis. So that calm under pressure, the decision-making under ambiguity, the ability to motivate, the empathy and EQ stuff. All of that we've talked about. Is there anything else we need to be thinking about to be prepared as leaders? I think the one basic thing, and we, we may have mentioned it, but I don't think we quite, quite caught up in the recap, is you really want a strong team in place to handle a crisis because no single individual is strong enough or has the endurance to manage through anything that lasts more than a, than a few days. And so having that strong team that knows how to work together, um, that has done some training and, and uh, exercising together so that you're not dependent upon a, a single CEO or a single division vice president, but that team can handle their special life functions, can back each other up, can give each other a break so you can get some rest because you have to take care of yourself in a crisis. This is, crisis leadership is a team sport, and it is important to have that team in place and, and have alternates in case someone's not available, but that will make a huge difference because you do never know when that big crisis hits if the uh, the person you were counting on to lead it is, you know, on an airplane 30,000 feet up and it's not going to land for another eight or nine hours, people can't be waiting for that person to show up. you got to be able to get, it, get rolling, get the action going. I've also seen cases where that key person that we were counting on suddenly decides that this is the time I'm leaving this company and going someplace else. So the, I think the team is a really important concept. And we can't be building that team dynamic in the middle of the crisis. We may strengthen it after the crisis, but it better be in place in advance. Okay, Eric, go ahead. It strikes me, we've been talking about this in terms of crisis, you know, whether it's a climate issue or um, a security issue or a product issue or who knows what else out there, social media issue or just the behavior of your employees problem. It strikes me, though, that what we've been saying is as applicable to any time of change when whatever you were doing before isn't what we're going to be able to do going forward. Do you see it the same way? I do. I mean, I think we are just in a period of continuous and sometimes significant change, which is what makes it feel so turbulent. Um, change is a constant now in every organization, whether you're looking at the you know, market changes, technology changes. All sorts of things are in play all the time. 
And so I think that the organizations that do this well uh, amid change and who can continually adapt to the change are ones that where the values are clear. They take good care of their people. They have that value set that says, you know, customer first, whatever there happens to be, that they live into that. Because those things don't change as much when, when the other change is swirling around you. Um, those are things that can be constant. When you have a culture that's transparent and forthright where you can be honest with people, that helps create islands of certainty amidst the change. And that keeps people calm and focused and able to be productive. That's, that's great advice. So the, I come back to this, you know, my specialty is helping people develop the skills they're going to need as they're getting up the curve and trying to thrive on the way. And this just underscores to me some of the stuff that we, everybody is doing more and more and more in at this moment. And we talk about teaching how to be calm under pressure, but it all starts with really truly understanding yourself, understanding what you stand for, understanding how you react, understanding how much sleep you need, what you can do with, without, who's on your team, how do you build that? And it's right to to if you don't have that strong EQ, you're going to really struggle to excel when there's change or a crisis or when we need to step up to lead in these kind of critical moments. So you see some of the development trends for that we've been doing for the last several years becoming so important for this particular kind of a situation. I think you're right. These things don't happen by accident. I mean, there's a reason there's much more attention these days to mindfulness, to resilience, to, the, to general wellness, um, because it's, we're in a more stressful environment. And um, these are the ways you take care of yourself and you take care of your people. Uh, and, and none of us is superhuman. So you do need to be a bit vulnerable. And yes, you want to be strong and you want to be in there and, and helping your team, leading your team, but you don't want to fall down in front of them either. So you've got to be um, smart enough and savvy enough to know uh, that when you need a break and you've got to be able to have people you built who are strong enough that you feel comfortable saying, you know what, I'm going to be gone for the next eight hours. You guys have got it. And unless the world ends, don't call me. And trust that they're going to be able to do what you need, need them to do. That's a really strong organization, and that's when they can thrive amidst all kinds of change. Okay. Makes an, enough sense to me. Now, we've talked about this in terms of a large organizational, you know, that has sort of a global presence and they're in the big headline news and they would have had a board and they would have time to do some crisis training. Do you think this is as applicable to an entrepreneurial firm? I think that entrepreneurial firms are, in some ways, at greater risk uh, because you, again, depending on how much funding you have or what stage you are in your development, you may be a bit more fragile. Um, and yes, you can't have a big superstructure in place with multiple crisis teams and those kinds of things. Um, but you can do some very basic training. You don't need to bring in experts. Um, but do some, if, if this happened, how would we handle it? Do it over a lunch. Buy people pizza. You know, take, it, take an hour and discuss what you would do, what are people worried about, um, because crises hit small organizations, entrepreneurial organizations, as much as they do big ones. And a small one, they can put you out of business. Um, yeah. So be thinking through how you how you would do it. Um, and it's tough for an entrepreneur. I've worked in with startups, and you, you're so focused on right now because you're you're trying to get your product out. You, you're small. You haven't got a lot of uh, excess people or resources around you. Uh, but you've got to keep your eyes open and your head up every once in a while. Uh, look at what's coming at you because if you're putting that much of yourself into building a business, you don't want it to all fall apart because you weren't ready for some sort of crisis or, or confrontation that you had to deal with in a hurry. So 
Okay. May not be at the same investment levels at a, at a, as a Fortune 100 company, but there's some basic things you do that don't cost a lot and don't take a lot of time to get you to get some of the basic building blocks in place. Right. Well, it strikes me you could pick up any of the headline news stories in any given week and say, if that happened to us, what would we do? And I can also exactly. say your book is chocked with advice. And again, the book that Eric is co-author of is Your It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. All right, Eric, you have one minute I just have to have you say, what's the Elephant Wisdom Project? So the Elephant Wisdom Project is, is my humble attempt to get us to look at our world a little bit differently. Uh, elephants in the wild could be extinct within 10 years. 96 of them die a day. And I think if we don't have a world where elephants thrive, humans won't thrive much longer either. So I use the elephant as a way to say, let's look at the world and what would it take for species like elephants to thrive and how might that help us see our own condition because we haven't been very good at looking at ourselves. We're still, you know, having lots of wars and environmental destruction and things. We're not good at ourselves. But a big elephant, you have to explain to your kids why are there no elephants in the wild. That would not be a fun conversation to have. So I'll try and use that. I raised some money for the Big Life Foundation, which does work in Africa. Uh, I run holistic conservation efforts. And I just use it as a lens to say, what if? Elephants are a, a uh, keystone species. I have a column you can find a link to easily on keystone species, which explains why they're so important in their ecosystem and why the keystone employees in your organization are so important to your survival in the future. Great. I love it, Eric. How that was that in a minute? <laughs> that was really good in a minute. I can also tell you, if you'd like to know more about this um, model and how Eric is approaching it, go to his website, ericmcnulty.com. Um, Eric, fabulous conversation today. So much to think about. I think the number one thing is get your head out of the sand or get your head up and look on the horizon. Given all that's happening, I think it's a matter of time before crisis hits your company. Better to be prepared now, regardless what level you're at. And if you're a younger person developing some of those skills so that you can be a great leader in a crisis so that ability to be calm under pressure to make decisions under ambiguity to motivate to have empathy and I think it all comes down to me and listening to you talk at being crystal clear as an organization about what our values are um, having processes that allow us to investigate and to get to the bottom of things the willingness to be transparent and to own whatever goes wrong and say, right, we're accountable, we will take care of it. And I think lastly is taking care of your people, not just saying it, actually doing it. So that in the moment of crisis or of change, you've got somebody backing you. The book again, You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. Eric, thanks for being a guest. Fabulous discussion today. Wanda, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. And join us next week for another bit of wisdom on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.